You're listening to Non-Toxic. I'm Daniel Penny. And I'm Andrew Lewis. Picture this. A young guy in his 20s named Sam is driving down a service road in Wisconsin. It's half an hour from the nearest highway. And he's headed to the house of a man who goes by the name of Mr. Freeze to buy some old canisters of car refrigerant. More on why in a moment. Sam doesn't know this man from Adam. Mr. Freeze might be a reasonable guy, ready to do business, or he might pull a gun on him, which wouldn't be the first time. Here's Sam. He's in the middle of, of you know, farm country in Wisconsin, and I realized that he was connected to some of the biggest reclaimers in the country that, uh, you know, like also revered him and were like, yeah, Freeze is one of our, our best customers. He took me on a tour of his property, which was like many more acres behind him that were basically like full of like old appliances, old freezers, old refrigerators, I think dehumidifiers, like mountains of them. He showed me like the very large holding containers, and this is the first time I got a sniff of like just how much refrigerant he probably had. Like he had several like half-ton cylinders full of refrigerant, like basically in his back porch. <laughs> Part of my evolution that I learned about through meeting Freeze was that like you really cannot underestimate you know what someone can create in a, in a rural kind of like, I wouldn't say decrepit, but kind of grungy space, you know? There is a climate change story that can be told about my experience, and there's also just, like, an America story that can be told. The reason Sam was driving around America's back roads to make shady deals with auto mechanics and antique car enthusiasts was because of a very special class of chemicals called chlorofluorocarbons. You probably know this stuff by the brand name DuPont used when they made it, Freon. But the manufacturer of Freon was banned in 1994 for good reason. Freon does two horrible things for the environment. It destroys the ozone layer, and it's also a super potent global warming gas, like 11,000 times more potent than CO2. According to the scientists at Project Drawdown, disposing of CFCs and their chemical cousins is probably the single most cost-effective way to reduce overall global warming. Quote-unquote, refrigerant management isn't as sexy as cloud seeding or carbon capture, but it's essential that we take care of it if we want to have a livable planet. The problem is that there's still a ton of this stuff floating around, not just in the atmosphere, as we'll discuss with our guests in a moment, but also in the secondary market. Even though CFCs were banned in 94, you're still allowed to use them or sell them to somebody else. So Sam's company stepped in with the idea that they can make money off of carbon credits by rounding up used Freon and sending it to a plant in Ohio to be destroyed in a superheated kiln. Then they would sell the carbon credits in California's cap and trade scheme. And it was Sam's wheeling and dealing that brought our guest today, Eric Wilson, who's the author of After Cooling, to this story of refrigerant. Eric knew Sam through a friend and basically started following him around on these pickups. And through this reporting process, he discovered that it wasn't just the CFCs that he wanted to learn more about, but the kinds of people that Sam was meeting along the way. Okay, tell me about these guys. Not surprisingly, many of the men Sam dealt with were politically conservative, and oftentimes they were global warming deniers. 
And if they suspected Sam was going to destroy the Freon they were selling, they'd call off the deal. So he always had to be really careful about how much he revealed about himself. Here's Sam talking about that. I still had to be on my guard and, and be, be careful about like, how transparent I was in every conversation. There was a guy in, uh, we'll call it on the East Coast, who, you know, I'd called out, cold called basically, had the similar thing, you know, asked if he had R12. And he was like, he must be one of these, you know, one of these carbon people. And, and, and again, <laughs> it was kind of like, okay, I've done this before. And I actually ended up meeting up with him at his facility. We can call him Jimmy. He showed me all of his, like, amazing refrigerant equipment and and it had a similar kind of like, you know, some people don't do this the right way. I, I, you know, these, these are the efforts that we take to be really accurate and to be really precise. And he talked about himself as, as a conservationist around this material, which was kind of interesting to me. But he was saying, like, I want to reuse it as much as possible. We have, and it's not as if he was unfamiliar with with the kind of language of environmentalism, but just took it in a very different way than, than we did. But he on his on his lockers in his in his facility had like a Confederate flag sticker on it. He was like super welcoming to me and was you know a good business partner and someone I worked with several times. And I saw that and it just like sent a shudder down my back. But you know it, it was weird to me and it, it felt strange to me that I could have a conversation about refrigerant and about the climate issue and kind of make a case on that but also recognized that I felt like I had to be silent about some of these other issues that I really care about and were part of the motivation for me being involved in environmental issues in the first place. I think one of the, the patterns that I saw was that there, there is incredible generosity and tenderness among American tradesmen, but it's often built on a language of, of hate. In this two-part episode, Daniel talks with Eric Wilson, author of After Cooling, about his journey into the world of used Freon and the surprising stories he uncovered as he put together what is arguably the definitive history of air conditioning. I learned a lot from this conversation, Daniel, and as the summer only gets hotter, I think it's going to make all of our listeners think twice, maybe three times about that AC unit currently humming in their window. Okay, great. So, Eric, thanks so much for joining Non-Toxic. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for having me on. I wanted to start with maybe a little background on who you are and how you came to Freon. I know that you just graduated with a PhD in English from CUNY Graduate Center, so a lot of people might be wondering how this English PhD student wound up writing this massive and pretty definitive account of the history of Freon. How, how did you get to this subject? Yeah, that's a great question. If you had asked me 10 years ago whether I'd be writing a whole book about air conditioning, I would have said that you were crazy. So I had many false starts writing about climate change, which is, of course, such an enormous topic that in encapsulates literally the entire planet. And because of that, it can be so overwhelming and so ungrounding. How do you write about totality? The, the quick answer is that you can't. And so I was looking for something to really ground myself in 
something specific, but I had no idea what that was. My close friend, Rebecca, we were having a conversation and she said, you know, you should really talk to Sam, her partner. And I think you should interview him because he has a really, really weird job. Sam's job at the time was to drive around the United States looking for used Freon, that is car refrigerant. I want to take a step back because I think we should probably explain to listeners what Freon is and maybe even just like how air conditioning works. Because I think a lot of us just take for granted that it's a box and you plug it in sometime around June 1 and don't turn it off until the end of September or increasingly October. What is air conditioning exactly? And like, what is, we don't use Freon anymore, but maybe talk about what it is, how it worked with air conditioning, and then we can get into the story of its eventual replacement. Yeah, fantastic. So Freon is what's called a chemical refrigerant. And from this point on, I should probably refer to it as CFCs or CFC 12 is the specific one that Sam is buying. And the reason for that is because Freon is a brand name and it kind of became synonymous with refrigerant, kind of like Xerox or Kleenex. And so you might hear the Freon brand name still being used today, but likely it's not a CFC. So CFC stands for chlorofluorocarbon, which is an entirely man-made chemical. It's not found naturally. And what a chemical refrigerant does is it's a, it is a liquid that, or gas, I hesitated because it's a gas at room temperature. So it has a very low boiling point. And that's crucial because the reason why it's important to have a low boiling point in a refrigerant is that the evaporation and condensation of a gas actually cools and heats. So you can do this with water, you can do it with carbon dioxide, you can do it with anything. And it's more energy efficient if you have a low boiling point because you can actually just let the gas warm to room temperature and it evaporates on its own. And then in condensing, it absorbs some of that heat. And so through evaporation and condensation, a very simple process of natural physics, that's how air conditioning works. It's actually quite simple. And we've known this since about the 18th century. The tricky part is in controlling the conditions that allow a specific gas to evaporate and condense. So oh, there's a sort of famous story about a, this was really discovered by a Scottish scientist named William Cullen in the 18th century. And there's a famous story about Benjamin Franklin replicating the experiment and cooling the air in a, in a closed chamber by evaporating it really quickly. So we've known about this physics since the 18th century. And I guess but we've it experienced it on our bodies since, as long as exactly. humans have been alive. And thank you for bringing that up. That's a great example. So sweating is basically air conditioning. It's exactly what the evolutionary process of sweating does. When you're hot, your body produces sweat. And ideally, if you were, say, in a dry environment like a desert, if you're in L.A. or something, then that sweat will easily evaporate from your skin. And its evaporation absorbs heat from your body and takes it with it as it leaves your body. 
So the heat is actually actively leaving your body as the sweat evaporates, which is essentially air conditioning. So the 19th century was a sort of interesting period because one of the things that I explore in the book was I look at one of these kooky characters from history, a physician named Dr. John Gorey. This was a malaria doctor who was looking for treatments to help soothe his patients who had malaria. And we have to remember at the time, they didn't know what was causing malaria. Interestingly, Dr. John Gorey, among many other physicians, thought that it was caused by a bad air, miasmatic air. And he thought that a finely netted fabric around his patients would prevent malaria. And he thought it was because it would sift out the air. And it actually worked not because of the bad air, but because it kept out the mosquitoes, which we know now causes malaria. But he was looking for a way to cool his, his patients. He would sometimes order big blocks of ice, which at the time you had to order from Canada or Norway, and it was shipped over in these big ice boats. And, and he would place it on top, sort of at the ceiling, and then let the cool air drift down, and then sometimes fan it with a hand or a kind of mechanical crank fan. Who was doing the fanning? Ah, uh, yes. And the fanning was houseboy, quote-unquote, or servant, which I'm pretty sure was an enslaved person. This was Florida in the 1840s in Apalachicola, sort of panhandle of Florida. And so it's alluded to a couple of times, and very likely it was a sort of young enslaved houseboy. So one of the things I explore in the book is the very uncomfortable intertwined histories of, of racism, specifically anti-Black racism in the United States and the flourishing of air conditioning. And in fact, that Benjamin Franklin story, I found out from a letter from Benjamin Franklin that he was sending to a, to a physician to describe the cooling that he had just performed. Very short letter, four pages. The first two pages are a description of how he made the air cool. And then the last two pages are about how this will be so wonderful to cool white people, but the enslaved Africans don't need it because they're from Africa, therefore they can deal with it, which is of course false. It's biological racism, but it was a common belief at the time that, that black people could endure pain more, but also could endure heat more because of the color of their skin, which again is false. But a very, some people still have that notion, actually, this sort of geographical racism that, oh, you're from, you know, the Sudan, so therefore you can endure heat more. So let's get back to this early history of air conditioning. How do we go from blocks of ice to canisters of Freon? Guri is an avid inventor, and he invents what, what appears to us now to be a fully formed modern air conditioner, albeit quite clunky and maybe takes up a whole room. But a true air conditioner, and it cools his patients. He files for a patent for it. He wanders along the eastern seaboard looking for an investor for this invention, and he must have thought he was going to be rich. And the surprising thing to my mind in my research that I found was that no one was interested in it. Sweating had become such a way of life. It had become character building for the white aristocracy who we have to remember, didn't actually have to work because they had enslaved people to work for them physically. If you were rich enough and if you were the working class, you couldn't afford one anyway. It was seen as unhealthy, too weird, too out there and bizarre. 
And poor John Gouri died, actually, of all things, of malaria um, before he'd found invest an investor for an air conditioner. That is tragic. Truly. And this was in the 1840s. And it wouldn't be, it would be 60 years before there was another major advancement in air conditioning. You're listening to Non-Toxic. More of our conversation with Eric Wilson after the break. Today's episode of Non-Toxic is sponsored by Fruly, a New York-based snack company making next-level trail mix with heirloom varieties of nuts, berries, and whole-roasted cacao beans. Find Fruly products at select boutiques and health food stores or order directly online. Listeners can use the code NONTOXIC, that's in all caps, for 20% off orders at fruling.co slash shop. Fruling, naturally delicious. Back to our conversation with Eric Wilson. And so at the turn of the 20th century, you have one of the biggest names in air conditioning that probably many people have heard of, Willis Carrier of Carrier Air Conditioning. For nearly 40 years, the father of air conditioning, Dr. Willis H. Carrier, with his associates, has been making weather to suit every conceivable requirement. Single rooms, modest homes, buildings like Rockefeller Center, enclosures everywhere are today benefiting by weather made to order by Carrier. And he was, as a young engineer, he was put on the task of, of controlling the climate in a printing press. They were running a color magazine, and in the humid days, the ink was running all over the place and ruining the magazine. So they conscripted him to control the air, the humidity level, to lower it and lower the temperature so that the ink wouldn't run. And he did so successfully. So this was the first real commercial use of air conditioning. And I should say that this machine and also Gorey's used a refrigerant that was not Freon. I believe Gord's maybe used carbon dioxide. There are, there are a whole host of refrigerants called natural refrigerants. So why not just use natural refrigerants then? The problem with natural refrigerants are that most of them are either poisonous or explosive or sometimes both. <laughs> so in a, an age in which it was hard to contain these gases that were often kind of leaky, ammonia was a pretty common one. I believe that was what Willis Carrier used. You know, if you've ever cleaned with ammonia or you've experienced an ammonia leak, it's super unpleasant. It smells like piss, right? So this was something that was fine for a commercial space, but a little dicey when it came to a public space and certainly a domestic space, which nobody was thinking about at the time. So that happened in 1902. Uh, the same year, actually, a different engineer was conscripted to design a air conditioning system that was, would be the first air conditioning system for humans. And this, which I find quite telling, was not for the home, but for Wall Street. It was to cool the traders during the summer on Wall Street so they could continue doing business, which was sometimes interrupted by the heat. So these first two big uses of air conditioning were not for human comfort in itself. They were actually to lubricate the flow of capital. Okay. So how did air conditioning go from being this niche product for businesses and industry to something that everybody in America had to have in their home? Frigidaire, the General Motors division having to do with cooling appliances, knew that they would make bank if they could find 
a refrigerant that was neither poisonous nor explosive. If they could find that one that was super safe, so people could eventually put it in more public spaces in the domestic sphere, and that was also cheap to manufacture and incredibly stable. And that actually, that drive for stability will become one of the things that makes Freon so destructive, about which in a, more in a moment. In comes Thomas Midgley Jr., the inventor of Freon, and quite an unlikely inventor of Freon too. This is, I believe, one of the 20th century's great mad scientists. He was not trained as a chemical engineer. He was trained as a, as a mechanical engineer. This man was so eccentric that General Motors bought him a house outside of the campus so that he could do his work, but that they wouldn't have to interact with him. And he was already quite famous for the leaded gasoline success or debacle, however you would like to frame it. So in, at the end of the 20s, he was approached to come up with a new refrigerant, something that would really make Frigidaire a lot of money if he could find some kind of chemical solution. It seemed as if it was completely non-toxic, completely stable, and totally safe. So it is non-toxic in terms of direct contact with humans. But what they didn't know at the time, and what we would find out thanks to Sherry Rowland and Mario Molina in the 1970s, two physicists, was that Freon is so stable, nothing breaks it down. And so it just kind of lingers in the atmosphere for decades. If Freon is in a air conditioner, uh, how yes. does it wind up in the atmosphere? Great. Great question. So theoretically, in an air conditioner, it, it's maintained within its closed system. But that's theoretical. And the real story is that nothing is a closed system. And after about 10 years, any kind of chemical refrigerant ends up leaking entirely into the air. The other thing is that because it was so non-toxic and so stable, it began being used in aerosols. So in anything from like Lysol sprays to hairsprays to deodorant sprays, and this really kicked off in post-World War II time. It became the age of aerosols. And that's particularly dangerous because you were just spraying Freon into the air freely. And for a while, it was thought that that was the, the main or rather only problem. But as it turns out, and like I said, any Freon that is charged into a system will eventually find its way into the atmosphere. It's just a matter of time. And you can think about the lifetime of an air conditioner. You know, when we're done with an air conditioner, ideally we would call the Department of Environmental Protection and they would come and pick it up and safely dispose of it. Who has ever done that, right? You know, we're living in New York City. You walk down the street, I see every summer just people trashing air conditioners on the street, right? If you are going to get rid of your air conditioner, who should we call? You should call the city. Cities often have a pickup program. So I think if you live in New York City, for instance, you can call 311, but go to your state or city department of environmental protection and there'll be some kind of plan for doing that. Or if it still works, you can pass it along to somebody else. Thanks. Back, back to our regularly <laughs> scheduled programming. <laughs> so this is a problem with 
follow through in environmental cleanup, it's very easy to ban the production of something. It's really, really hard to clean up something that's already out there. And this is a pretty good environmental principle for all of us to remember. Yeah. If you don't know how to get rid of it, don't make it in the first place. Exactly. And we don't really have that kind of cautionary principle here. In the United States, it's like we are, we are sort of taught to go forward boldly and apologize or pay for it later. So 50s and 60s are, are a very interesting age for Freon, what I've called the, the age of Freon. And the reason for that is because they entered for the first time because of a couple of factors, post-war prosperity, the housing boom, the cheap housing boom, and also modernist design, which began to be, it began to require air conditioning. This was an unusual case. Unusual, even though it was typical. It involved a housewife on a hot, humid day. Uh-oh. Wow, it's hot as a steam bath in here. Now our friends face a hot, sleepless night. But I told you, they were typical. They've been going through this sort of thing summer after summer. Comes the morn. Our boy has reached a momentous decision. He's tired and he's hungry. He's going to do something about that air conditioning today. Um, people were building prefab housing that had very little or poorly designed ventilation, which was fine because you could just stick an air conditioner into a place and you didn't need to consider the outside environment. And so many of us are used to that kind of design that we forget that that's an entirely new invention. You know, I often hear people say, I can't imagine a world before air conditioning. Um, which is hilarious to me because that means that you can't imagine uh, the entire history of human civilization before like 1900. <laughs> and the difference is that we began to design without the environment in mind at all because we didn't have to. We could just control the interior humidity and temperature at our will. And we thought with very little or no consequences. And so the late 40s, 50s, 60s, you have air conditioning invades the home. It's in basically everything that can spray, anything that can cool, including refrigerators, ice boxes, freezers, refrigerated trucks, you name it. So it's everywhere. We have this incredible Freon boom. And actually, James Lovelock, the, the scientist who is responsible or most famous for the Gaia hypothesis, sort of on a whim, thought, well, what happens to these CFCs once they escape into the atmosphere? And he found that there was a startling concentration of them that just stayed around in the upper atmosphere. And strangely, his research kind of stopped there. He sort of did the peer-reviewed version of a shoulder shrug and said, well, this seems pretty safe because Freon is safe. Two Physicists, however, around the same time, this is the early 70s, Sherry Rowland and Mario Molina decided to investigate this further. What actually happens to Freon in the stratosphere? Does it just stay there? Does it interact with anything else? And to their horror, they realized that 
it was theoretically possible for it to completely dismantle the ozone layer. More of our conversation with Eric Wilson, author of After Cooling, next week. Non-Toxic is a production of Loose Thread Studios, hosted by me, Daniel Penny. And me, Andrew Lewis. Music is by Nathan Sharp. Art is by Sam Creasy. Today's episode is made possible by our sponsor, Fruling, and by the donations of listeners like you. If you'd like to support the show, please visit patreon.com slash nontoxicpodcast, where you can sign up to receive our monthly newsletter, exclusive merch, and more. And please make sure to rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps people find the show. But nothing does that better than telling somebody you know about it. So spread the word.